came from heaven and earth with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven and earth with love. And proud love, our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. <laughs> the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is, your, is at your right hand. He will shelter kings in the day of his wrath, or shatter kings in the day of his wrath, if I could read. He will judge among the nations. He, he will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray. Lord, you have promised and you have delivered. You have said that there will be a kingdom where you will rule, where Christ will sit upon the throne. And while we know it is coming, it is not here yet. Lord, strengthen our faith that we would long for that day, seeing the fulfillment of your promises in times past, seeing your work continuing, your gospel spreading, your sanctification growing. And let us have the strength and the courage to stand firm in your faith, knowing that your kingdom is good and that it is coming and that we will be secure in it because it is you that secures us. Let us cast aside the fear that we may have. Let us live bold lives for you and your gospel.
Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with praise. I will say this the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with praise. I will say this the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with praise. I will say this the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad, he has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad, he has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. Alrighty, couple of things this morning. Uh, check your bulletin. There's all sorts of good stuff in there, including a reminder that we are having a business meeting today, right after the service. <laughs> you will not miss the free samples. You will survive. So that's lunch on Sundays. Take this man to get some food, please. <sighs> they make this thing called breakfast. You should try it sometime. So. Won't take long. There's not a whole lot to go over, so we will go over that stuff and get you out of here in plenty of time to get your Costco samples. A um, couple of actual important updates. Um, if you did not see it yesterday, no, it's not important. A couple of important things. If you didn't see it yesterday, Sam was scheduled to have a pacemaker put in tomorrow morning. He uh, got a little lightheaded and passed out at home on Friday. Uh, Shelby couldn't get him up, so she called the rescue squad. They, of course, got him up, took him to the hospital. They put a temporary pacemaker in and wanted to keep him over the weekend to make sure nothing bad happened. It's a good thing they kept him. He woke up this morning, and at some point over the night, the, uh, the temporary pacemaker had failed. So they started surgery at 8 o'clock this morning to put a pacemaker in for him. According to the doctor, from what Shelby said, if everything goes well, he'll be home by lunch. <laughs> I have no idea how that works. So they're just going to crack you open, plug you in, sew you back up, and send you home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so 
never I, I keep saying I never feel more and more like I feel more and more like a Honda every time I hear about these heart surgeries where they just you know open you up change some fluids put a new converter in there and close you back up and send you on your way another 40,000 miles should be good to go <laughs> so uh, Sam actually uh, Shelby said he blamed himself he was moving around too much in the hospital room which is why the the leads didn't work or something so that's supposed to be today I told her to let me know as soon as surgery's over so I haven't got an update yet so I'm hoping at any point She's going to let me know that he's heading home. So uh, remember that one. Mike was going to try to be here today. They did successful surgery to remove the stone. Turns out it was not one massive stone. It was two large stones smacked together, which is why nothing was moving. So she didn't have to break them up to remove them. She could just remove them as is. But he's still not feeling well. He was doing a little bit better as the week went along. And he sent a message this morning saying that he, the pain he's in right now feels like another stone. So apparently the man just grows them for fun now. Um, the hope was that the stones that they took out earlier in the week were large enough they could be analyzed to figure out what they're made out of so they could figure out what's causing them. And Mike's in agreement. If they tell him whatever it is, he's never eating it again. So, <laughs> so mm. hopefully they get that figured out sooner than later and he feels a little better. So remember Mike this week in your prayers along with Sam. Um, I'm going to double check. I don't think there's anything else on my list. Is there anything else? There is not. Is there anything else I'm forgetting? don't think so so again read your bulletin all the information you need is in there so what country did the king of assyria lay siege to for three years no the king of assyria did not lay siege to assyria let me see one of those crutches <laughs> no that was later it starts with samaria and he conquers samaria see, this is where this is where i told you to read the full end of the story to make sure we I'm going to make sure we get it done. Why could Samaria fall? This is where knowing your full biblical revelation is so very helpful. The Assyrians come down 722, 721, depending on which history you read. It gets fuzzy as the years change there. And they, they end up conquering Samaria, which is the northern kingdom. Remember, you have Saul, David, Solomon, kings of a united kingdom. After the reign of Solomon ends, Rehoboam, his no-good, useless son, takes over, and he can't get along with anybody, so the kingdom splits. The northern ten tribes form the kingdom of Israel. The southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin form the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, where in Genesis are you told the king will come from? Or rather, you're told in Genesis 49 that the king will come from where? It will come from Judah. So do we care what's going on in Assyria, or not in Samaria? You care, but not as much as you should care about what's going on in Jerusalem in Judah. Mm. So when the Assyrians come through, they conquer Samaria. This is a big deal. The Assyrians had a way of ensuring hegemony in their kingdom. They would deport people while importing other people. The goal was to create a kingdom of mutts. So you weren't a Sumerian anymore. You weren't, uh, a, you weren't from the tribe of Issachar. You weren't from Persia, even though there wasn't a Persia technically yet. You weren't from Assyria. You weren't from any of these places. You were just part of the empire. You lose the national identity. This is why you hear about the lost ten tribes. When the, when the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom, those ten tribes are basically wiped out as an ethnic identity. This is why when you get to your New Testament, you have the uh, animosity between the Jews in the southern part of the nation and the Samaritans. Because the Samaritans are not just a mixed race um, nationally, but with that comes the promise that God had warned the people that they were a mixed race uh, religiously as well. False idols, false worship, 
they're no longer identifiable as the people of God from Moses and the Exodus and the whole nine yards. They conquer and lay siege to Jerusalem. Why don't they conquer Jerusalem? They don't. The angel comes down, wipes out 185,000 Assyrians in one night. The Assyrians withdraw. The reason this is important is if that occurs, if the Assyrians take Jerusalem, and without the intervention of God, they most likely would have, what happens to the line of Judah? It's lost. We no longer have the line to follow from the king. Instead, God uses the Babylonians to judge Judah and Jerusalem. Why? The Babylonians don't destroy your national identity. They seek to assimilate your culture into their culture while letting you keep your identity. So when the Babylonians conquer, they exile, but they don't force an interrelationship. They don't force the mixing of the peoples. They just turn you loose. They, they, they lay waste to things. So you still have the preservation of the kingly line from Judah following through, the line of David from which Christ will ultimately come. So you have success against the Samaritans, failure against the Judeans because of the, preser the, preserva the preserving. I want to say preservating, and that's not a word, and I don't want to make it one. That you have the preserving work of God for his people so that his kingdom, as we're reading in Psalm 110, his promises that he has laid out will be fulfilled and the people will be able to follow it. This is why after Jesus has come and gone, the Romans can come through and destroy the temple. No more records, no more priests, no more sacrifices. Why? Because it's been fulfilled and completed in Christ. So you see God working in timelines that accomplish it. Just as we were talking about last week, remember? Working in the timeline we live, but accomplishing what? His ultimate timeline. See, I told you there's good stuff in here. <laughs> Don't shout this one. In the book of Hebrews, we are told to throw off or get rid of what? I know you know it. It's an easy one. I literally told you where to find it. So the worst thing you have to do for this week's answer is read the book of Hebrews. As we all know, it'll do, it'll do you, you good. good. <laughs> and I am going to say that until the end of time. So there you go. Read the book of Hebrews. It will do you good. And the answer will be in there. And we'll go over that one next week. Last chance. Am I forgetting something? In that case, I will stop talking so we can stand and sing. What a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arm. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arm. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarm. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arm. Oh, how sweet to walk in this pilgrim way, leaning on the everlasting arm. Oh, how bright the path grows from day to day, leaning on the everlasting arm. Leading, leading, safe and secure from all along. Leading, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arm. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arm. 
I got blessed peace with my Lord so near, leaning on the everlasting arm, leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarm, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arm. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarm. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arm. Leaning on the everlasting arm. El Shaddai, El Shaddai, El Adonai, H2H, you're still the same, by the power of the name. El Shaddai, El Shaddai, El Adonai, we will praise and lift you high, El Shaddai. Through your love and through the rain, you saved the son of Abraham. Through the power of your hand, turn the sea into dry land. To the outcast on her knees, you were the God who really sees. And by your might, you set your children free. El Shaddai, El Shaddai, Eliona Adonai, age to age is still the same, by the power of the name. El Shaddai, El Shaddai, Eliona Adonai, we will praise and lift you high, El Shaddai. Through the years you made it clear That the time of Christ was near Those people couldn't see What Messiah ought to be Though your work contained the plan They just could not understand Your most awesome work was done to the family of your son. 
That's what she had to work, because he just sat closer to make a quick entrance. So, Smart man. Make the long trip to sit with your wife. All right. Can you guys hear me okay? All right. If nobody answered, then the answer was no. That's how you always check that. If you say yes, or if you say no, then the answer is yes. All right. We are continuing our march. We're going to call it a march, for a while at least, through the book of Exodus. Went ahead and warned you, we will be here straight shot until the end of October before we start taking some breaks, and then we get a nice long run at the beginning of next year. So we kind of get to make some, some headway and keep the, uh, keep the big picture in mind. So, as a reminder, when you get to the end of chapter 2, Moses has been set about to his new life, and we get to a Quantum Leap style, you know, fast forward in time. I guess on that show you rewound in time too. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you're a better human being for television in the 80s than I was. So, I mean, he, with Scott Bakula, you know, all of a sudden he's hopping in and out. It, it, was, gr- it was great 80s television, you know, the, the height of, of good 80s TV, apparently. Now, a note about this, though, because I warned you in Exodus that we were going to hop about and move around. Remember that we are working in God's time frame. So while these people are living and walking in their timeline, the one we really care about is the overarching one where God is accomplishing his purposes. That does not always happen in a frame that we would prefer, but it is always in accord with what God will accomplish. And this is one of the things I always warn people when you're reading your Old Testament to watch out for. Do not think that your Bible is a book full 
of miracles and miraculous occurrences. There are long slogs of life that are occurring in between our verses where people are just living life. Having day-to-day things, getting up, going to work, you know, dealing with the flocks, dealing with crops, dealing with problems with the neighbors, all these things are going on. We just don't get them recorded for us because we're concerned with what? That big timeline, not the regular one. The majority of human history has lived an ordinary life in an ordinary way, and that's good news because that means the majority of humanity can serve God in their ordinary life and in ordinary ways. The lie of modern culture is, you're going to be famous, you're going to be spectacular. No, the godly admonition is be ordinary and serve in the midst of the ordinary because that is the lot of the majority of humanity. So when we left off, God had promised action for his people. We could see the the tide was turning and that deliverance was coming. That deliverance begins here in chapter 3 with a call. So Exodus 3 verses 1 through 12. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it brought that, uh, that sorry, that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Doesn't do any good to try to read something when your brain and eyes skip a line, does it? Doesn't work that way. So, what have we got going on? Much to do and less time to do it in, so dive right back in. Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. So we've got Moses settled. We've got him living this simple life as a shepherd. We have fast-forwarded a long time. Acts 7.30, Stephen giving you the recount of history. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flaming of a burning thornbush. Excuse me. So we have jumped ahead yet again. He led the flock to the west side of the wilderness. I'm resisting the urge to go, west side! And I failed. So... There you go. It's actually a terrible translation. It literally just means beyond the boundaries. So Moses has led the flock outside of Midian. 
Now remember, if you have the book of maps in your Bible, you can uh, go over to it. As you're looking at those maps, I would put one on the screen, but they don't translate well into this program, so it doesn't fill the screen. It just looks like a map on the screen, which means it's the equivalent of me holding one up. It's, it's just pointless. So if you don't have Bible maps, you can look it up on Google when you go home and check this out. Um, when we're dealing with Midian, you're talking about the northwest corner of modern Saudi Arabia. So if you're looking at the Red Sea, at the top of the Red Sea, there are these little tributary bays. They split off kind of like grasshoppers antennae. We're on the east-southeast side of the right-hand tributary bay there. So Moses has gone outside of that area, and he has traveled northward because that would be out of Midian. To go in another direction would be to still be in the boundaries of Midian, and we're going to cover that in a second. And he comes where? To Horeb, the mountain of God. This is Mount Sinai. Again, Hebrew is such a fun, specific language. And I say that jokingly. Um, Hebrew loves generalizations in its language. So when you, you have to deal with contexts, and that also applies to people. So we've got Jethro, who is Ruel. We've got here... Horeb, which is also Sinai, just kind of depends on where the tradition runs again. And as you, as you, English, as you read through your Bible, you will see this. Exodus 19, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So here we have Horeb. Later on in Exodus, we have Sinai. Fast forward, Deuteronomy 4, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. He's talking about Exodus 19, and he goes back to the name Horeb. When the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my word, so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, that they may teach their children. I won't sing the bad 70s song that just popped into my head. Now, if you would like to check this out on Google Maps, you can. This is uh, Jabal Musa, which literally is just Arabic for Mount Moses. It is a sister peak of Mount Catherine, which is near the town of town and monastery of St. Catherine. They built the monastery. The nuns hang out there. You can look at it on Google Maps. It's a fun little place. You can even click on the little dots and walk around if you can't afford a plane ticket like me. Now, I will cover this quickly because it's not worth diving into major if you'd like to hunt around on Google and YouTube, you will find a handful of documentaries making argument for Mount Sinai not being in the south-central portion of the Sinai Peninsula where we're arguing for, but in northwestern Saudi Arabia. Thinking that that's what beyond Midian actually means, it doesn't work because northwestern Saudi Arabia is Midian. So therefore, you, can't, uh, you cannot pasture the flock outside of Midian while still being in Midian. Doesn't work that way. Never has, never will. So we're going with the traditional designation here. That will be the official position as we work through the book of Exodus, that we are in central, slightly southern Sinai Peninsula for this mountain. Verse 2. While we're there, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Don't miss this. Too often, I think, we have a tendency to remember in our minds or picture in our minds what this looks like. This is not fire at the bush, voice from heaven. Because that's often how we think of these things. You know, we think of God showing up to talk to Abraham and we think of, you know, symbol and voice from heaven or God just speaking. You know, that's how the movie portrays it. It doesn't always work. 
We are in the midst of the bush. So the angel of the Lord, who I would argue every time you read angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, you are dealing with a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, because he typically appears as a man in the form of a man, and he speaks for and on behalf of and as he is God. So the angel of the Lord and the Lord are the same people in regards to power and authority. So you're dealing with God the Father and God the Son. Here we are appearing, though, as a fire in the midst of the bush. Why? Remember what we're doing. We're connecting the work here in Exodus to what has come before and what will come later on. The first way we do that is Genesis chapter 15. Remember 15. It's your great faith section, right? God comes to Abraham in the vision, leads him outside, and tells him to look at the stars, and that is how numerous your descendants will be. And the great faith verse that Hebrews quotes, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. His faith is what saves him and makes him clean. When you get to the end of the chapter, you get the covenant between Abraham and God. Abraham is told to assemble the animals, set up the covenant, set up... Oh, ceremony. My brain does not want to find English words today. I need sunshine or something. It's, this is not working. <sighs> the larger animals are split in opposite halves. The small birds are sacrificed and placed. What's supposed to happen in a typical covenant ceremony is, so Fern and I are making an agreement where whatever the agreement happens to be, the way we will seal this agreement between, between our people, because my people are here and your people are here. So instead of my people calling your people, my people and your people witness. We would then walk between the pieces, and then we would have a meal, symbolizing a fellowship and a joining in this agreement. Part of the reason we do this in the presence of our people is, if I renege on the deal, you see those animals cut in half? There's the penalty for reneging on the deal. Who takes care of that? Your people. Likewise, if you renege on the deal, we turn you into the split pieces. Who makes sure of this? My people. This is the covenant. It is a life bonding, and a, a binding agreement. Aren't you so glad you live in the 20th century in America or 21st century? Now we just sign documents, right? Yeah, I'll just sign my mortgage. That's, we, don't, we don't need to cut cows in half. I'm good here. Now, this is what Abraham has set up for God. How does God pass through the pieces? Genesis 15, at the end of the chapter. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Abraham, well, Abram here, he's going to become Abraham later on, doesn't pass between the pieces. He falls asleep. He has no part in the agreement with God. God has promised by himself that he will deliver this. What form did God use to pass between the pieces? Smoking oven and a flaming torch. Remember those when we get later on into Exodus. So what are we hearkening back to with God appearing as a flame of fire? We're hearkening back to the covenant promise with Abraham. Once again, though, the other part. We have an actual appearance here. Genesis 3, 8, Genesis 12, 6, and 7, Genesis 15, 5, Genesis 17, 1 through 3, Genesis 18, 1 through 3, Genesis 32, 24 through 32. If you don't know what those are offhand, Genesis 3, 8 is God in the garden. Genesis 12, 6, and 7 is God calling Abraham, sending him through the land, and then standing there at Bethel with him. Genesis 15, we mentioned, is God giving the promise. Genesis 17 is when God commissions circumcision. Genesis 18, is the promise of the birth of Isaac. Genesis 32 is where Jacob has his wrestling match with God. All of those things are not 
voice from heaven. They are actual manifest appearances of God. They are God there on the ground, demonstrating what? Why? Why go to those lengths? Can't God just like, you know, shout down from heaven, hey, turn left. Like, you know, like great heavenly GPS. You're going the wrong way. Go this way. We have a personal, loving, involved God that you can actually relate to. He is he is relating to his people in a way that makes sense to them, that they understand because he loves them, he cares for them. And this is also pointing. What's the ultimate explanation of God? Hebrews 1 gives you this answer. The ultimate revelation of God is, no, it's the Son. It's the incarnation of Christ. God in flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. The ultimate revelation of God is in Christ. He is the final prophecy. He is the final appearance. He is the way that God is made known to his people directly. All of these appearances of God are pointing to that final appearance because what do we get in the end? What do you get at Revelation? You have God physically dwelling with his people upon the throne, in the garden. The lamb is there. Everything is set right. So what was lost will be restored. In the middle... We get reminders, connecting the dots so that as you're reading through your Old Testament, getting to the New Testament, you didn't just go from the garden and we flew way up here and now we've got a kingdom and now we're going to a prophet or something and now we're in the New Testament. We have all these little stepping stones that we keep up with. We follow along so that when Christ appears, it's like, there it is. There's the fulfillment of all this stuff we've been following along. Verse 3. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. I don't know if he said it exactly like that, but that sounds a lot better than what I probably would have said. So I I like this better. When the Lord saw, verse 4, that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Burning bush is weird enough, right? Speaking burning bushes. Yeah, I think I'm stopping and started looking at the sheep. Did you say that? What did I have for lunch again? My wife trying to poison me. I hope not. Moses said, here I am. I mean, what else do you say to that? <laughs> this is one of those things, there's, there's no great theological truth here. You can maybe connect this to Isaiah, but I mean, there's a speaking bush in the middle of the mountain. Okay, let's go with it. Verse 5, this is where we do get some good theology. Then he said, by the way, Exodus is great for this. You got to really pay attention to who your he's and him's are because you get two people introduced and then we get a he. So sometimes we'll correct this when we're certain. So God says, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Okay. I'm going to go with that. Important theological question. Why? Why is it holy ground? But what does that matter? <laughs> See, this is important, and this is going to connect us to Christ also. This is, these are one of those questions I want you guys to get used to asking when you're reading your Bible. What makes the ground holy? Leviticus chapter 5. If a person touches any unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of unclean cattle or a carcass of unclean swarming things, though it is hidden from him and he is unclean, then he will be guilty. 
or if he touches human uncleanness, of whatever sort his uncleanness may be, with which he becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him, then, and then he comes to know it, he will be guilty. So process this. The Levitical law, one of the biggies was leprosy. Dreaded uh, Old Testament, New Testament disease, skin disease, you all sorts of different kinds. The worst one, though, you kind of become ashy in the skin. It's an autoimmune, autoimmune disorder. Your body is attacking itself, and it looks horrible. It's painful. It's, it's miserable. If I had leprosy, and I come into contact with you, even if you don't get leprosy, you are now ritually unclean. You must go through the purification process before you can partake of the feast, before you can enter into the temple, before you can give your sacrifices, all of this stuff. Now, I know what you're thinking. I thought you were asking me how the ground was holy. What does the Levitical law on people being unclean have to do with the holiness of God? <laughs> Luke chapter 5. While he was in one of the cities, he here is Jesus. Behold, um, time out, slow your roll. There was a man covered with leprosy. Now you see why I use that analogy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What does Jesus have to do to make him clean? He can snap his fingers, he can clap his hands, he can say it. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. Okay, according to the law, what's the problem here? Jesus is unclean. I've touched a leper. Yeah, I healed him, but now I am unclean. Is Jesus unclean? No. This is a great lesson. Why not? Why is there leprosy? Why did God put it there? I mean, is leprosy fun? Was leprosy the design of humanity? You're like, wait a minute, I got it. Sin brings disease, death, and human suffering. Since leprosy is a disease that causes human suffering and death, it must be the result of sin. Does sin stand in the presence of God? No. When Jesus reaches out to touch the leper, does Jesus become unclean? Or does that uncleanness flee from the glory of God? This is important. Why is the ground holy? You were right, because God appeared. But why does that make it holy? Because God is there. And if he is there, there is no sin. There is no iniquity. There is no uncleanness. There are no evil bacteria any longer living in that area because God has zapped them all just by his sheer presence. You see the same thing in Luke chapter 8. Um, Verses 43 through 48, the woman who's with the, with the issue of blood, she's been bleeding for 12 years. No one can heal her. What does she do? She reaches up and she touches Jesus. What's, what's, what's the problem? By touching the rabbi, I have done what to him? I've made him unclean. Unless your rabbi is God, in which case not only is he not unclean, but you are cleansed. You are healed. This, this is why your sin separates you from God. Okay, It is not because God looks at your sin and he's like, ooh, they have cooties. Or he's over in the corner, get them away. It is because God is pure, he is holy, he is righteous, and he is good. And if we took your sinful self and plopped you in front of his might and glory, your sin would go running from the room. And since your sin is an integral part of you in a fallen world, your molecules would go running away from you. 
You're talking about the end of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark when the Nazis open the Ark. Yeah, the, the smoke and the melting and the whole nine yards. Yeah, it would obliterate you because you are unclean and you cannot stand in his presence and glory. Ah, this is the mercy that Christ delivers. And this is, all, this is also a comfort to the Christian living in the world. Because how many of you get to battle your sin each and every day? All of us. This is what we do. It's frustrating. It's tiring. I have bumps. I have bruises. I have aches. I have pains. I have diseases. I've lost loved ones. I have all of these things that I hate. How do I know they're going to be gone? Because when God comes down, that ground is holy. When God comes down, things get cleansed. So I know that if I am promised that I will stand with him in Christ, and I will stand blameless, that that means that sin is going to be gone. That means it is leaving, and I don't have to deal with it. This is, this is the song, right? My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. I'm clean in him. Why? Because he cleanses. And in Christ, I am promised life, and I am promised security. And God's holiness demands that it will be brought to pass. This is good news for me. This is also why I can look at a world and have concern and compassion for them, and why I can worry. Because I know if that is true of me, what's going to happen when they stand before him? They will be cast out because they can't stand there either. And apart from Christ, they will be sent to that judgment. And that should concern me. I don't have to worry. I'm good. I don't have to be mad at you because I know you're not. But I know there is one who will make you good. And that's a lesson. There are little things like this throughout your Old Testament that if we think through, they connect us. We don't have to go on scavenger hunts to find Jesus where he doesn't exist. We can see the glory of God on display and apply it rightly to who he is, what he's done, and how that relates to us. Verse 6. God said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. If your Bible translates that as I am the God of your fathers, then it has translated it incorrectly. It is singular. So you have a fourfold designation here. So I am the God of your father. Who is that? See, I would argue it's both Amram, who is a husband of Jochebed, you know, the, the lady who put him in the river, and it is also Ruel slash Jethro. I think they should both get some credit. Because is God the God of Amram, the God of Israel? Yes. But is he also the God of Ruel, the priest of God Most High? Yes. So Moses gets a double whammy here. But he's also the God of who? God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Why do we have to go back that far? What's so important about those three? Exodus chapter 2. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Made a mention of this last week. God made the covenant and reiterated with Abraham multiple times. He made the covenant again with Isaac. Doesn't have to, but he makes it again. He makes the covenant again and reiterated it with Jacob. Doesn't have to, but he does. So that when God deals with his people, he can hearken back multiple times to a promise that he has made, that he has sealed as God has walked through those pieces, excuse me, proclaiming that I will do this. 
So when God says, I will do this, what do you know is coming? Whatever this happens to be. This is your testimony from Isaiah. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. Just as I have planned, so it will stand. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Smart man. I wish he had that smarts in about four verses, but anyway. The Lord said, verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have given heed to their cry because of the ta their taskmasters, for I am aware of their suffering. We've made mention of this multiple times the last couple of weeks. What does God not see? Nothing. Where is God not aware? Nowhere. This has been demonstrated throughout Genesis. When Abraham is in Haran, God can call him. When Abraham goes down to Egypt, God can protect him. When Abraham is wandering as a stranger in the land, God is with him. When Hagar and Ishmael, when Hagar runs and takes Ishmael, God is there. He can provide. Whether Jacob is in the land or whether he is in Padan Aram with, Le uh, with Laban, God provides. When he's traveling, God will provide. There is nowhere that God is not. This is the nature of his work and the fulfillment of it. He's telling you, I know, I see, I'm working on it, and that work will have a conclusion. Where? Think this one through very carefully. The work that we're promising here to Moses, where will it find its conclusion? Because I know what your first thought was. Your first thought was like, well, Passover or the Red Sea. Hebrews chapter 4. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, let us draw near to God in his dwelling, in his throne room, because we can. We don't have to fear his holiness, because in Christ, we too are holy. We don't have to fear his wrath, because in Christ, the wrath has been poured out. We don't have to fear any of that, because we know in Christ, we stand firm. This is the ministry. This is what Jesus was promising and what he was declaring. How is this true? How is this the case? John 3, verse 3. Jesus answered and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Being born is kind of a big deal, right? Like, nobody ever tells you, like, I had a baby, and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, this, you're expected to celebrate, be surprised, be happy, buy gifts, you know, blankets and diapers and things, right? This is what we do. This is kind of important. You celebrate that every single year. It's, it's a big change in your life. What do you have to do with it? <laughs> you're just hanging out one day, be like, you know what, today... I'm coming in, Mom! Whee! See, you're laughing because that sounds ridiculous. You're just like, no, no, I had children, no. <laughs> I got one for sale. <laughs> There's laws against that sort of thing, I think. Unless you're in Eastern Europe, in which case there should, there should be laws against that. There's one of those times you can say there ought to be a law. <laughs> Most of the time when someone says there ought to be a law, there shouldn't be. I think in that case we should say there is. Similarly, though, what do we do to attain the status in God's kingdom? Basically nothing. Who, do, who accomplishes it? Christ does. This is why Jesus continues on with Nicodemus in verses 14 and 15. 
As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. This is the reminder. This is the pointing that is going on. God sees, God knows. And notice he keeps saying this, because what's the human tendency? Like, how well do we remember things? Yeah, go ahead. You're going to walk out those doors today, and you know what you're going to forget? Half of what I said. I'm going to walk out those doors today, and you know what I'm going to forget? About half of what I said. <laughs> That's how this works. There is, no, there is nothing more terrifying than someone going, what's the sermon about Sunday? And for a split second, I go, I have no idea. Wait a minute. Okay, well, yeah, yeah, I do. I've been working on it all week. It's not like I should know this or something, you know. Because And Terry does this to me every week. He sends me, because we can plan songs. And I'm like, the minute I get the text message, there's always that minute where it's like, what is the sermon about this week? Oh, yeah, okay. <sighs> Need some more fish oil or something going on in there. So what does God do? Nothing's changed. We're not better or worse. We're humans. So what is God continually doing for his people? He's reminding them. He's telling them. He's reiterating the truth. Why? Because we forget and we fear and we wander away constantly. So he's constantly doing what? Hey, can you see? there you go. Good job. Verse 8. The result of all of this, so I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. Yay! Go team, right? Let's make sure we understand this. What is the power of the Egyptians? Because believe it or not, that's another bad translation as well. It's, well, I, I don't want to throw the NASB into the bus too much today. It's not a bad translation. It's just, it's, it's an English understanding of a Hebrew phrase. It literally says, I will deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians. Which, the, the way to say that is, you have rescued me out of their hand means you've rescued me from what? Wait, is, is, Egypt, physically, is Egypt physically holding on to the Israelites? No, but they, fit, but they figuratively have power over them. This becomes important because, remember, we have multifaceted battles going on. Remember this about Exodus. We don't just have one fight. We get tempted when we read history. And Old Testament narrative is history. We get tempted to dive into the history, and we know it really well, but we miss the layer. That's part of this. So you, with what you've got, remember, in Exodus is we've got God taking Israel out of Egypt. That's a physical thing. He's going to relocate those people. But you're exactly right. We've also got to take Egypt out of Israel. That's a spiritual endeavor. We are changing their worldview. We are changing their hearts and their minds on how they see the world around them and how they interact with it. You will see the failures of this as we move forward. Exodus 14. They said to Moses, this is standing at the edge of the Red Sea, is it because there were no graves? Labor and we can't get out. Oh, great. There was nowhere to bury us there, so you couldn't work us to death, so you brought us out here, so there'd be plenty of place to bury us. Good job. Appreciate it, Moses. Awesome work here. This is when, this is when you want to reach in your Bible and just be like, mm. it, it is. I, again, Israel turns into every four-year-old on a road trip. I'm hungry. You just ate. Oh, I didn't like that. <laughs> I have to go to the bathroom. I will turn this desert around. Exodus 16. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel. Notice that. 
How many of them? All of them. Can you get a room of 40 people to agree on anything? We got a whole nation to agree on this one. And they grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, would that we had died in the Lord's hand, or by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. You got to read this in dramatic voice. Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat, we ate bread to the full. You have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us with hunger. Isn't that your kid on a road trip right there? Like, when they're going, I'm hungry. Isn't that what they wish they could say? Isn't that how they wish they could phrase it? Like, we had food at home, but you have put me in this Buick and driven me four states away so that I may die by the side of the road. (laughs) Why? What's in the people? The wrong worldview. Christian, welcome to you day in and day out. Welcome to the vast majority of the church and humanity. This is why we must be disciplined. I'm coming back to this concept because we're never going to leave this concept as long as God's giving me breath. Remember we talk about spiritual disciplines. They require what to be exercised. Discipline. So prayer, fellowship of the saints, reading of scripture, walking in godliness require active effort. It does not happen passively. It's not like you're on autopilot. Like I made, we Cameron and I made jokes for years for our, for our daughter Jada, because gravity hates that child, and gravity has hated that child since she could walk. I mean, she would just be going through the house and just fall over, and you're like, "What just happened?" And she would never just fall in the middle of the room, but it would always be about a quarter of an inch from the brick fireplace, or like she would fall going up the stairs on the top step, or she would fall going down the stairs at the bottom step, and you're just like. You know, four steps more, and, you know, she's a basketball. It was always always just in the midst, and Cameron and I would joke, you know, man, her guardian angel's got to be an alcoholic at this point. Because <laughs> if you actually follow her, you spend your whole life going, because <sighs> you're always just a step too slow, and but you're going to kill me. We have a tendency to think that that's how we get sanctified in this world. That there is just some godly force walking behind us, and every time we're about to wander into traffic of of worldly stupidity, it pulls us back on the sidewalk. Sometimes, yes. Most of the time, you know what the Holy Spirit does? There's a bus coming. Yeah? You're going to keep walking. Yeah? There's a bus. All right, I warned you. And you know what the Holy Spirit lets you do? Get hit by the bus. Because you know what you need to learn? You need to get hit by the bus. That's how worldly consequences purify you, which means you have to get hit by the bus and do what? You know, if I had listened like a quarter mile back when I saw the sign that there was a bus coming, you know what wouldn't happen to me? Now I'm growing. Now I'm being wiser. This is the discipline of Christianity. I use a silly example to try to make the point. Why am I disconnected from God? Is it because God has left me? No. Is because I have managed to find the one molecule place in the, entire of, in the entirety of the universe in which God does not see me. No. Have I managed to find the one place where God cannot guide me and lead me? No. I've stopped praying. Why can't I apply scripture to the situation? I haven't been reading. I haven't been studying. I am not doing the active discipline of Christian living in the world. The reminder of scripture is to do what? To continue in this discipline. Because this, this is us. The grumbling in the wilderness is us. 
The whining for water and for meat and for graves and for all these things is us. So the discipline here, God doing these things is so that he can take them out, but so that he can also change this people. The story of the Exodus, we've said this next door, I'm going to say it over here again. If you had to summarize the book of Exodus in one word, it is redemption. We are redeeming a people. We are not relocating a people. Now, will Israel be relocated? Yes. Is that the purpose for the work? No. So while we are moving them, we are not doing it for that sake. We are doing it for the sake of redeeming a people. It is a change of who they are. At least it is supposed to be. That's part of the failure that goes on that we'll actually address as we get through it. Now, what do you think has changed? Absolutely, positively, nothing. What's the cost going to be for Israel here to be redeemed? When God comes down, what's the tax that's going to get paid? And who's going to pay it? The tax is going to be the demonstration of God's power and might over all of creation and all of the nations. Who's going to pay the penalty for that? Egypt is. Egypt is. Christian, in order for all this fancy stuff we're talking about, for you to stand in the throne room and or for you to not fear the glory of God, for you to be able to stand firm, what was the payment for that? And who paid it? First Peter chapter 1. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like gold or silver from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of a, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. See, this is what spurs us to action. God didn't pay a tax. He didn't pay a penalty. He died for you. He didn't just come down and do some good works. He ascended to a cross on your behalf to bear your penalty. In his righteousness, he bore that penalty. This is why Jesus is, is uh, sweating drops of blood in the garden. The wrath of God against sin is coming. If you're going to be afraid of anything in all creation, you know what you should be afraid of? The wrath of God against all sin coming. Yeah, this is a smart thing by Jesus. This is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, being afraid of the wrath of God. Therefore, when you address this, how should you live in this world? What did Peter tell you? Live in fear of this world because you've been redeemed from your former way of life, your former way of thinking, your former way of walking through the world. If you've lived in a Christian manner and you've walked in Christ for any length of time, you'll know what I'm talking about. There are things 20 years down the road that you look back on and go, I can't believe I thought that was okay. And not only did I think it was okay, like I argued with other people that what I was doing was okay. See, you're laughing because you're like, uh-huh, yeah. That, like, in Christ, I was standing there saying, that's okay for me to do. And then you look 10, 15, 20, 25, you, know, you turn into the auctioneer down the road, and you're like, man, was I dumb. Can I give you a little hint? If you manage it another 20 years, you know what you're going to do? You're going to look back where you're standing right now and be like, uh-uh, I don't even know who that person is. Why? <laughs> I wish I could mark that one right there. <laughs> Jonathan, I doubt it. (laughs) If the Holy Spirit loves you, you won't. And that's the warning. You have to be transformed day by day. This is the consistent declaration of Scripture. This is what's being shown here, is God is going to demonstrate his power, demonstrate his authority, and demonstrate his redemption. And is it enough for these people? No. 
because they have not been fundamentally changed in who they are. This is why you get the cries of the prophets and the cries of the Psalms for God to do what? Change me. Change my heart. Redeem me. Show me how I should walk. Because that's what's needed. Christian, that's what you've been given in the Holy Spirit. You've been given the change of heart, the change of mind, the empowerment to go and evaluate your life. Now you must be disciplined to do that work. Now notice the promise that goes with it. To bring them up from the land to a good spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. And behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. reason I say you can see that according to promise is again rewind to the end of chapter 15. It came about when the sun had set and it was very dark. I read that part already. The flaming oven and the torch passes through, and on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, and the Kenizzite, and the Cadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, I'm sorry, the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, who names these people, and the Jebusite. This is the promise. All these people... We will drive them out, and this land will be yours. What is God reminding? Well, it's at the end of verse 8. What's he reminding? All those people, we're going to boot them out, and that land will be yours. <clears throat> now, here's where we have some fun. Verse 10. Therefore, uh-oh. <laughs> Anytime you see a therefore, everything we just said is about to get applied to something, isn't it? Therefore, come now. I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. I thought you were going to do it, verse 8. You have come down to deliver them. Why have I got to go, right? Let's remember our life of Moses. Who has gotten him to this point? Who secured him in that river? Who changed the heart of Pharaoh's daughter? Who, who got him out of Egypt safely? Who managed, who managed to make sure? I mean, think about the odds of this. Moses running the Monty Python style, run away, you know, with the little dude coking the coconuts together behind him. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, again, you are a better human being than I am. God bless you. While this is occurring, who makes sure that he crosses a desert, rivers, valleys, all of these things, and he lands at a well in Midian where there happens just so happens to be a priest of God with seven unmarried daughters. Like, bad Hallmark movies start like this, right? The, the ones we watch at Christmas, like, you know, like where the evil executive just lands in the small town with the one single guy in all of the town and only likes her. What are the odds of these things? They're minuscule. They don't happen. But what happened to Moses? Who do you think managed to make all of those just so happens, just so happen? Why? Because Moses is now perfect. He's moved from Moses to Moses. And if you don't remember that, listen to last week's sermon. It'll be funny, at least a little bit. And if you've never seen that movie, again, take a weekend because it'll take you that long to watch it, especially, especially if you have kids and you'll see what I'm talking about and laugh. This is, he's been living and being instructed by a priest of God for 40 years. He's been set about to a simple life, getting the Egyptian mindset and way of life out of him. But he is still from the people, knowing the bondage and the oppression, still knowing the right of delivering the people and the wrong of the oppression of Egypt. He still has all of that, but he now has it in a new, trained heart and mind. He's literally perfect for this job. Verse 11, 
But Moses said to God, no. Maybe I should say it this way. No! (sighs) Anytime God tells you we're going to do something, there should never be a, but then I said to God, no good ever comes from that phrase. It's one of the few absolutes I'll get. None. God says we're going left, but just shut up and turn the car left, okay? So if God ever appears to you in a flaming bush and tells you to do something, you know what? You go do that. I, I won't argue with you. I may question you a little bit, or we may have some evaluations, but go. you try to go do that. So Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. You're welcome. (laughs) No, I couldn't help it. That has been in my head all week. Now, I give it to you. It'll be in your head all week. You're welcome. No, who am I that I should bring the sons of Israel out? The answer, no one, you silly rabbit. That's the point. You are no one. Deuteronomy 7 goes to show you the growth in Moses' life because Moses' final message to Israel before they enter the land is Deuteronomy. What does he tell them in chapter 7? The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than the other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The, uh, the, the Michael LeBate paraphrase of that is, God didn't pick you because you were awesome, but he picked you because you were the exact opposite of awesome. Because he loves you and cares for you. And regardless of your lack of awesomeness, he still is faithful. This is good news again because, again, how often do we struggle with sin? And what's the temptation? What's the lie of the world? This is, again, why you have to purify yourself from thinking like the world because the lie of the world is, oh, look at you, sinner, walking in the ways against God. He does not love you. And who do you start listening to? You're, You're not redeemed. You're not really saved. He hasn't set his love upon you. Look at you. Why would he set his love on you? You don't even set your love on you. Why would he do it? And you start listening to that, and you start walking in the wrong direction. Why? Because you are living according to what the world desires and not what God desires. What's the reminder? God doesn't love good people. How many of them more would there be to love? It's one of the great lessons I heard in a sermon years ago. God does not save good people. Why not? Good people don't need to be saved. It's a reminder. The lie of the world is that he can't love you because you're no good. And if you don't like that lie, you know what the other lie is? You're good, so you don't need his love. Both come from the pit of hell, and they should be rejected. No, I'm not good, and he loves me anyway. And by the way, this Deuteronomy passage we're reading, we can apply this to the church too. You know why I say that? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Consider your calling, brethren, that not many of you were wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. Is that a compliment? Isn't that like the most backhanded compliment ever? God has chosen you, the foolish things of the world. Wait a minute. Why? To shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. There's a lesson in there. Chose Israel because they were the least. 
and because he had loved them and promised to them. He has redeemed his people because they are the least of these and because he has loved them and because he has promised to redeem them. There's your answer. You get caught in the answer. Why me? Because God has loved you. I don't know why, but he does. Don't ask me. Ask him. (laughs) If he gives you a reason, let me know. This is the danger of not being conformed to heaven. This is the danger of being conformed to this world. It's almost like there's a Bible verse that warns against that somewhere. You know, almost like, you know, has a house of like, do not, mm, we should write this one, right? Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. That's a good one, right? But what? What should we do? We should be transformed. This is your Romans 12. By the renewing of your mind. So that you may know and test the will of God. So that you may do what is pleasing. So that you will be bought from the world. Because you are bought from the world. Therefore, you should walk how? Like a renewed, bought person should walk. So, who is Moses? You're nobody. Despite everything that God has done, you are no one. But God is everything. Verse 12. And he said, God said, certainly I will be with you. Good start. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Is that comforting? Like, I got to go to Pharaoh, tell the people that they're leaving, I got to take them out, and the promise that this is all going to happen is that I'm going to come back here. Do you want a little more than that? See, this is sin talking, right? Because my answer is, yes, I want more than that. I want flaming torches and cut pieces and stuff. I want something. I don't just want to, well, you're going to come back to this mountain. Why is this a comfort? Notice your Bible. Let me ask you this. Do you ever notice, I've always asked this, is what's our funeral verse? Like if you're going to read something at a funeral, what, is, what are we going to read? We're going to read Psalm 23. Why? Think through this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters, green pastures. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death what do i fear why not because thou art get good king james going right thou art with me thy rod and thy staff they comfort me why is a rod and a staff comforting because if something else is bigger than me what have you got big heavy stick this is important when do we feel most helpless been involved in a lot of funerals i can very rarely recall a time feeling less helpless than you do at a funeral. It is the ultimate confrontation with our mortality and the consequences of this world. That's why Psalm 23 became our funeral verses. Because when are we most recognizing that, you know what, I am not in charge around here. And if I have to wonder, there's literally a big box proving what? That we're not in charge around here. And the more I think about it, the less comfortable I get. Good. Good. Because the more I think about God, the more comforted I should be. Because in my helplessness, I need help. We mentioned this last week. I lift my eyes into the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. He shall not let your foot stumble. He shall not let you slip. This is kingdom application of biblical principle. 
walking in a dead and dying world, knowing that there is life at the end of my journey, knowing that no matter what happens between here and there, I will make it to that side. If you, um, you want to see a visual of this, um, Pilgrim's Progress, great book, John Bunyan. I encourage you to read it. It's awesome. Get an abridged version because you will not understand the English it was originally written in. It's just a nightmare. But get an abridged version. It's an awesome read. If you do not cry, I question your soul. It's, it's, now there's an, I have, I have a DVD. We'll have to do a movie night and watch this. But there's a scene where, because John Bunyan describes this, where he's got to cross this little narrow bridge in the dark, and there's the sounds of the demons, and it's just terrifying. And the man who's representing the Christian is named Christian, and he walks across this. And about halfway across, what does he remember? He remembers Psalm 23. And the movie does a great job of showing that because he's walking on this little narrow bridge and he can't see and he walks. And what is he remembering? Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Because all of this is, yeah. But where am I going? It's good. This is how we apply. Now, I didn't tell you just walk around your days reciting the 23rd Psalm, but remember that there is nowhere that God is not. See, I keep reiterating that. Because that's the thing we forget, that he's there, that he's powerful, that he's guiding, that he's securing, that all of the things we are worried about, he's got and he is taken care of. Paul puts it this way, 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, being always of good courage, why? Because we have now cast out fear in this world, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And this is true, right? When you're confronted with sin and death and destruction and all of these things, do you really want to be here? <laughs> no, those are the moments where you're like, God, just like snap your fingers. I just like, like, I, like I, in my sleep, right? I just uh, drop me now and then I open my eyes and I'm good. Like, I don't want to deal with this place anymore. Paul continues. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. See, there's our security. We're all going to stand before God. Is his glory going to shine and cast me out? No, because when his glory shines, I will stand, as Jude puts it, blameless with great joy because of Christ and his work that that sin has been nailed and taken away, that that glory has been shared, that that righteousness that I don't have that I want so badly will be provided, and that the sin that I despise and find myself sitting in way too often will be done away with, finally, and I will be whole. Why? Because he's holy, and because he sees, because he knows, he has walked, he has redeemed, and he has secured, and I in him am whole. This is how we live in the world. This is the truth that we walk in. So you'll, you'll hear this all the time in the news. Well, I'm just so glad someone was speaking their truth. It's like nails on a chalkboard every time I hear that. There are two states, that which is true and that which is false. There's no you have truth and I have truth. There's only truth. And the truth of the matter is that if I walk in Christ, I walk secure. If I walk in Christ, I can walk without fear. I can remind myself of his goodness and his mercy, and I can see it 
and I can see that, hey, I'm going to deliver the people. Awesome. So I need you to go to Pharaoh and tell him so that we can deliver. But, 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 if you were God, how quickly would you have just been like, next? That's a comfort. Because how often has God should have looked at us and gone, next? He didn't do it to Moses. If I'm secure in Christ, he won't do it to me either. So what do I do? I walk. I minister. I trust. Knowing that as I stumble, that someone, the Holy Spirit, a fellow believer, someone will pick me up again and we will continue on. And we will be secure because if I am his, then he will secure me to that day. And I don't have to fear and I don't have to worry. Not because I'm good. (laughs) Because he's good. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the promises that you have made and the work that you continue to do. Lord, we ask that you would continue to strengthen us, that as we fear and as we stumble, that you would give us courage, that you would lift us up, that you would uphold us because you will not fail and you have not failed. And that as we labor and as we fight, that your mercy and your grace would show us your goodness and that we would not lose heart, knowing that you are secure, knowing that we will accomplish the work that you, have had, that you would have us to do, that your kingdom will come and that we will rejoice. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. He is exalted, the King is exalted on high. I will praise him. He is exalted forever, exalted, and I will praise his name. He is Lord, forever his truth shall reign. Heaven and earth rejoice in his holy name. He is exalted, the King is exalted on high. He is exalted, the King is exalted on high. I will praise Him. He is exalted forever, exalted, and I will praise His name. He is the Lord, forever His truth shall reign. Heaven and earth rejoice in His holy name. He is exalted, the King is exalted on high. He is exalted, the King is exalted on high. I will praise Him. He is exalted forever, exalted, and I will praise His name. He is Lord, forever His truth shall reign. Heaven and earth rejoice in his holy name. He is exalted, the king is exalted on high. He is exalted, the king is exalted on high. He is exalted, the king is exalted on high. Just a couple reminders, business meetings, some members don't go far. We'll be quick and short. Well, a couple things. We'll get you there plenty of time. (laughs) Um, Remember Mike and Sam this week? I haven't heard from Shelby yet. She told me she'd let me know 
once she knew what was going on with surgery. So I'm just taking no news as good news for right now that more than likely on a Sunday morning, something got delayed. I can't imagine the surgeon was just thrilled to run in there at 8 a.m. on a Sunday. So as soon as we know something, I'll post it on pray.com and give everybody an update. So just remember that in prayer for this week. Let's pray. Again, Lord, as we leave this place, remind us of your goodness, your mercy, that in you we are secure and in you we can trust, so that as we walk, we would walk in a way that is pleasing to you, exalting your great work in name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.